This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 19. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles. But before we get there, let me fill you in a little bit on where we're going for the rest of the year. First of all, no more hymns, okay? Let it go, let it go. It was a great series, but we're moving on. Okay? You'll live, I promise. But we are, we are going to still take a break from our regularly scheduled broadcast and do something different this summer. The ladies' Bible study teachers made a great suggestion. Um, I forgot what we were talking about, but they said that I should do a series on refrigerator verses. And I'm going to take them up on that. Um, so when... Uh, next week, we're going to start our summer series on refrigerator verses. Now, by refrigerator verses, I mean those, those Bible verses that our culture has uh, hijacked and taken out of context into those kind of just generic axioms that you hang next to the cat poster that says, hang in there. Um, each week, I'm going to take one of those verses and show you the real truth behind them, what they mean in context. And, and I want to do that honestly because... The real truth is, is far greater than, than our, what our world has ascribed to it. Um, and then when we're done with that, that'll happen until we go to uh, Chicago and we get back from Chicago. Uh, we'll begin our, our new study in the fall in the book of Jeremiah. So that's where we're headed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, uh, we do look to you. Now as we come to your word, Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself and that you would reorient our gaze in the right direction. I pray that you would reorient our, our eyes and our face in the direction of promise and hope and peace. And ultimately, we see that those are in Christ. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us in this battle, this life that we live here on earth as, as our culture continues to move further and further away from you, that you would grow us into brighter lights, into uh, better images and examples of our Savior so that the world would see that much more of him. Father, it's in His name that I pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by first reading our passage. If you're in Genesis chapter 19, if you guys are familiar with the story of Lot, we'll circle back to this a little bit, but let me, let me start in Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, 
Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now, now we will deal worse with him with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and then shut the door and then shut and then shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you have any have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of, this, out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me a great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to, to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife... Behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Let me take a, a brief minute to explain to you why we're in Genesis chapter 19. As we were going through First and Second Peter, 
God laid this passage and this message on my heart, and it has been, let's say, incubating for, for several months. If you'll remember, Peter wrote his two letters to saints who were struggling because they were at odds with their culture. They had been exiled, and they were being persecuted, and they were suffering for their faith. And unless you've been living under a rock for about the past five years, it's clear that we're headed in the same direction, that our culture is headed in the same direction. See, for much of our history, we as Americans didn't have much in common with Peter's first readers. But as we studied his letters, I was struck by how rapidly our culture is devolving into theirs. However, as a result, God was convicting me of the idolatry that His Word was revealing in me. The decisions, this, this shift in our culture was forcing me to make, the, the need for me to, to, to pick an allegiance, the desires in my life were being challenged. And knowing that I'm not alone in that effect of the Word of God on my heart, I want to share this message with you. You see, the reason we're in Genesis chapter 19 is because as we, the, the, the 21st century body of Christ in America, get closer and closer to the experience of the saints in first. And second, Peter, I want you to look at what Peter said about Lot. In second Peter chapter 2, Peter was giving several examples of how God is able to judge those who need to be judged and save those who are His. And this is what he said in second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. He said, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. What I want you to notice in these verses is how Peter described how Lot was torn between his culture and his God. Notice how Peter said that Lot was greatly distressed by the actions of the Sodomites, and he was tormenting his righteous soul. In other words, living where he was living was tearing him apart. He was struggling with with being divided. He was being drawn in two directions. And this morning, I believe, like me, many of you are feeling that way. You are distressed by our culture. You see the America you, you love disintegrating, and it hurts. Your soul is tormented like Lot, by what's going on, and, 
And even for some of you, it's not just because of this. For some of you, you're feeling this distress and this tormenting just because of life circumstances. You feel pulled apart in two directions. You're unsure of what to do. You're, you don't know the decisions that you need to make. Your, your righteous soul is being tormented because you're stuck in the middle. However, as we saw with Lot's wife, a decision needs to be made. Which way are you going to go? Who are you going to follow? Where will your allegiances be placed? Where will you look for peace and hope and security? There are many of you in this room right now who need answers to those questions. So I have titled this sermon, Modern Day Lot's Wife. Because the fact of the matter is the American church is facing some of the same decisions that Lot and his wife did. As our culture descends into wickedness and corruption... Who will we follow? Where will our allegiances fall? To whom will we look for hope and peace and security? This morning I want to convince you to make that decision. I want to convince you to, to choose a direction. To choose a side. Really to choose a savior. This morning, I want to convince you to not look back. I want to convince you to not look back. And I want to convince you to not look back by looking at some of the lessons and warnings that are found in Genesis chapter 19. We're not going to go through the whole passage. We're just going to pull some, some pieces out of it and look at how we relate to what's going on. For example, look at the first verse in Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis 19 it says, the, the, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. It says, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now this description of Lot sitting in the gate says a lot more than you might think. The gate was where disputes were settled. The gate was, was where the influential and the wealthy peddled their, 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 their power. Commerce took place there. In other words, the gate was where the, the powerful and the influential men of the city did their business. Which means that Lot was one of those men. In, in one way or another, Lot was a power broker in Sodom. But it wasn't always this way for Lot. Flip back to Genesis chapter 13, a few pages to your left. You see, Lot had migrated about 1,500 miles to this area from a town called Ur, which would be kind of the area of modern-day Kuwait. And he had migrated about these 1,500 miles with his uncle Abraham. However, when they got there, Abraham and Lot had so many animals that they couldn't stay in the same place. They were all going to, the animals were going to eat themselves into, into starvation, so they had to split up. And Abraham gave Lot first choice of where they went, and Lot chose the Jordan Valley. 
But look what it says about him in Genesis chapter 13, verse 12. After this decision, it says, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. That's closer to the Mediterranean Sea. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. In other words, Lot was an outsider at this time. He was a foreigner. He was outside the city in his tent. But flip to Genesis chapter 14 if you need to. Because you see, a few years later, there was this battle in the Jordan Valley and Lot was taken hostage. And Abraham had to go and rescue him. But notice where it says Lot is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 12. It says these, these men who kidnapped him, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So now Lot was living in the city. He was outside the city. Now he's in the city. And now back to the first verse of our passage in chapter 19. It says now that Lot was actually sitting in the gate when these angels showed up. So not only was Lot wealthy, but if you look at the timeline, within something like 15 years, Lot had gotten from an outsider to someone with influence who was sitting in the gates of Sodom. So when these angels showed up to tell him to leave, listen to this, when these angels told Lot you need to leave. At that point in time, Lot had standing. He had authority. He had status. He had built a name for himself in this town. So look at his response to the angel's warnings. Look at verse 15 of Genesis 19. It says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16. But he lingered. In other words, the, the first warning I want us to see in this passage is we must not look back at our status. We must not look back at our status. Now let me explain what I mean by that. You see there there are some even in this room whom the Lord is calling. In all different ways he's calling you to grow, he's calling you to mature, he's calling you to be better husbands and fathers and and better wives and mothers and 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 he's just calling you to grow in the Lord, but you're struggling to take your eyes off your identity. You can't let go of what you think will make you successful. You're looking back at something you had or, or looking or something you, you think you need to be respected other than what God is calling you to. You're looking at wealth or assets or any number of things that you believe will, will give you security. You think that if you get the right job or the right place in life, that that will give you worth. Then you'll be respected. So you're torn because you cannot let go of what you think brings you worth, even though you know in your heart God is calling you to something greater. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, Jesus was talking about what it looks like to follow him. And he wrote, 
No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean as much to us as it did back then. It's the same thing with Lot sitting in the gate. But there's still a a couple farmers in this church who could explain to us what he's saying, explain to us what it looks like when someone looks behind them while they're plowing. And the resulting chaos and disorder that they would describe probably looks a lot like what your family's feeling and experiencing when you look back while God is calling you forward. It's the mess that takes place in homes and relationships when someone is distracted by the idolatry of self and identity and success and status. The idolatry of who you think you should be Instead of who God is calling you to be. It's the idolatry of what you think defines you best. What you think makes you valuable. What you think gives you worth. Instead of what God thinks. And just like Peter said about Lot, it's tormenting you. You're being pulled apart because God won't stop calling you. But you can't take your eyes off of your status or your identity. You can't escape the reality of what God's doing in your life, while at the same time you can't let go of the idea that you can find worth and respect in this world. Interestingly, there's a story in 1 Kings 19 about a farmer who was plowing. His name was Elisha. Yes, I'm talking about the prophet. Maybe you didn't know that. Elisha was a farmer before he was a prophet. But when Elijah came to tell Elisha, that God was calling Elisha to take over for Elijah. It says that Elijah was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Again, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but that's Spanish for Elijah, or Elisha was a very good farmer. 12 yoke of oxen is a, is a lot of oxen back then. He had a big farm, a very successful farm. However, he was so excited to follow God, First King says Elisha just dropped what he was doing and took off after Elijah. But as they were leaving, Elisha suddenly stopped. He just stopped in his tracks and he said, Hold on just a sec, Elijah. i got to go do something real quick. And he ran back to his farm. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 21, says, And he returned from following Elijah and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes and gave it to the people, and they ate. I'm assuming they ate the oxen and not the yokes. That might be a little chewy. But it says, Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Brothers and sisters, we could all learn from Elijah's example. You see, Elisha was so intent on following God and God alone that he went so far as to make sure that there was nothing for him to look back on. He slaughtered his fallback plan in case this following God thing didn't pan out. We must not look back at our status as God calls us to live differently from our culture. As that difference that God is calling us to live begins to grow further and further and further apart, 
And status in the world becomes less and less what status in God's kingdom is. We must not look back for identity from this world, for for respect from this world. We must not look back on the things of this world we think would give us security. We must take our eyes off of the trinkets and the awards that this world calls achievement. When the Lord is calling us to follow Him. It's an interesting principle that comes to mind when you look at the relationship of the head to the body. That principle is, is your body will always follow your head. For example, if, if you've ever wondered how like divers or dancers do flips and spins and things like that, they'll tell you, follow the, your body will follow your head. If you want to do flips and spins off a diving board, the, a diver will tell you, just crank your head to one side or the other and your body will follow. Interestingly, I think some parents have figured out that this principle applies to kids too. You know when your kid is tired, trying to tell them where to go, but they're not listening? Some parents have figured out that God has designed a little steering wheel on top of their neck. It's right about hand height too. They're not listening. You turn that head where you want them to go and their body follows. Here's the thing though. That principle holds true spiritually as much as physically. Wherever your eyes are looking, your heart will follow. Which means as our culture descends into chaos and depravity, you can't look back and move toward God at the same time. Any more than your head can go one way and your body the other. Your eyes can't be looking at this world and your heart follow God at the same time. In fact, look at what happened to Lot when he lingered. It says the angels in verse 15. It says the angels said, up, up, take your wife, your daughters, get out of here. Verse 16, but he lingered. It says, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought. I'm pretty sure the Hebrew translation for that word is probably drug him out and set him outside the city. You see, kind of like grabbing a distracted little kid by the head, God will ask for a while. When He deems it necessary, He is merciful enough to grab you by the head, as it were, and point you in the right direction. He's merciful enough to grab your little face and like we used to do when our kids wouldn't look us in the eye, and while we're holding on to their face, they're looking that way and they're looking that way, and he would say, no, you're going to look at me now. And for those of you who find yourself in that place, please hear me when I say from experience, that was not a fun time in my life. It was not a fun time when God forced me to walk towards him. That's the first thing. As God calls us to decide who we're going to follow, don't look back at your status, at at what the world has to offer you in terms of achievement, what the world calls success. Second, look at verse 4. The angels have have come to the city. Lot convinced them to to spend the night in his home. And it says in verse 4, 
But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door, and he said to them, I beg you, brothers, don't act so wickedly. Verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only don't do anything to these men, for they have come under my roof. Now, I don't know if you remember, back in 2 Peter, Peter called Lot righteous. How in the world is that possible? Remember that Lot was Abraham's nephew. This might help. Because even though they aren't very often compared, Abraham was not any better than Lot. For example, while Abraham and Sarah were in Egypt, Sarah caught the Pharaoh's eye. She's a pretty good looking woman. But because Abe was, was afraid that Pharaoh would just kill him to take his wife, he told the Pharaoh that she was his sister. In other words, Abe basically offered his wife to the king as a concubine just to save his own neck until the Pharaoh figured out she was married and sent him back to Abram. Abe wasn't much better than Lot. However, Abraham, just like Lot, was called righteous by God Himself. How is that? Well, Genesis 15 says very clearly that God counted Abe as righteous because he believed God. In other words, the only way Abe, or Lot for that matter, was righteous was because they believed God would save them. They believed that God would save them from their sin. Sins like giving your wife up or, or your daughters up. Terrible things. I tell you this story for a reason. As we read this, one of the most shocking, heinous things in the Bible that even the worst person would look at and recoil. I know there are many of you in here this morning who might have more in common with Lot than you'd ever like to admit. You have committed terrible sins that you will take to your grave if you are able. But here's the thing. We're in the same boat as Abe and Lot. We too are righteous because we believe that God has saved us by canceling those sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Granted, Abe and Lot didn't know that's who it was going to be, but it's the same faith, just with more information. I'm talking about those sins. They're those regrets, that, that, that shame that seems to be hanging on to you like a ball and chain. You feel like you're trying to follow Jesus through the mountains and the rocks of this life, but it's like this heavy iron ball of shame keeps getting caught in the bushes and the rocks. So you look back, remembering why you can't move forward. 
You look back at those things you did that you're dragging behind you. But you see, when Jesus died on the cross, listen, he didn't just unlock that ball and chain from your ankle. No, he unlocked it and then he took it from you because the Bible says it was nailed to the cross with him. But here's the thing. After he unlocked it, after he rose from the dead and proved that he had conquered sin and the grave, some of you have gone and picked it back up. It's no longer locked around your ankle. You're just carrying it around. And all you have to do is let go. Just let go by believing what Jesus did for you. You can let go at any time because Christ released you from that shame with His blood. And He did it both willingly and lovingly. You see, when I say don't look back, some of you, perhaps like Lot, need to be convinced to not look back at your shame. To not look back at your shame. As this world will try to condemn us and persecute us, shame will become all the more vibrant and hurtful and, and, and pointed and poignant. And some of you need to be convinced to not look back at your shame. You're looking back. You're taking your eyes off of Christ because you're dragging around a ball and chain you need not carry. And this goes for every person in here, believer or not. If you're in here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, just between me and you, I know you're ashamed about something. And if you don't believe me, then, then let me ask you this question. What if I was somehow able to just play a montage on this screen of all your worst sins right now in front of this congregation? I know you're ashamed. But the answer is the same for you as it is for everyone in here who believes. We must not look back at our status, and we no longer need to look back at our shame. Brothers and sisters, I cannot begin to describe to you the freedom that Christ has purchased for you on the cross. The freedom that comes from simply admitting, just, just owning and confessing. You know what? I am a horrible sinner. I have done some horrific things. There is so much freedom in owning that mindset because you know what happens when you do. Jesus says right back to you, I know. In fact, it's way worse than you think. But I gave my life so that you could be forgiven of it all. You no longer need to look back on any of your shame because I paid the price. He said, in fact, I paid the price for sins you don't even know you're going to commit. Don't look back. As our culture pulls further and further away from our God, don't look back at your status and the identity and the respect that you think you need from the world. And don't look back at your shame. It has been paid for on the cross. Finally. Look at verse 26, Genesis chapter 19. The angels 
this point have basically drug Lot and his wife out of Sodom. Lot had said, I can't go up into the hills because I'm, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's old and slow, whatever. He thinks he won't be able to get up fast enough, but he'll get caught up in the destruction. So he says, how about I go to this town? And they say, okay. They warned him not to look back, but in verse 26, it said, But Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus was comparing the, the suddenness of his second coming to the destruction of the suddenness of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 31. He said, on that day, meaning on the day that I come back, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. He says, remember Lot's wife. In other words, Jesus is saying that Lot's wife, she was pining for what she was losing. She, she missed what used to be what she was leaving. She looked back at her old life and what she used to have. And brothers and sisters, this is the, the, the primary warning that God has laid on my heart for us. You see, I feel very strongly that we as American Christians are in great danger of becoming modern day Lot's wives. We've lived in a nation that has afforded us incredible blessing. Freedoms and privileges that, that this world has rarely known in its entire history. Yet the sin of mankind is taking its effect on our culture. And listen, as our Lord calls us out of this land, as He calls us to be more and more distinct from this nation... It is becoming more and more depraved as He calls us to a life more and more like the original recipients of Peter's letters. As the admonition of Peter gave, which was, Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. As that admonition becomes more and more real to us, if we're not careful... Many American Christians are in great danger of becoming modern-day Lot's wives as they look back longingly at what was. As they are led into the wilderness of persecution and suffering, they are in danger of looking back, just like the Israelites did when, 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 during the Exodus when they looked back on the boiled meat and the safety that they had in Egypt. They're in danger of looking back in sorrow, listen, as their idol of security and freedom burns to the ground. They're in danger of looking back in grief at what they're losing instead of hoping in what they're gaining. They're looking back in grief that they are losing freedoms and rights instead of looking forward. To, I get to be like Christ. I get to be persecuted and treated unfairly. 
And I get to display to the world that that means nothing to me because I have him. They, they risk becoming modern day Lot's wives who can't help but miss what used to be more than they want what is coming. Let me be very, very clear for those of you who feel this way this morning. And let me tell you right now, this is about to get a bit uncomfortable. What exactly is worth saving about America? Is it the rampant abortion? Is it the, uh, is, is it the uh, systemic corruption? Is it the unbridled sexual depravity? Or abuse? Or greed? What exactly is it that we're looking back at America for? What do we really want? What are we so sad and grief-stricken that we're losing? Because if you're honest with yourself... I think you'll see that the greatest thing that we see slipping away that, that, that is causing us the most grief is our idol of personal freedoms and rights and fairness. And that's the problem. I would challenge you to show me in Scripture where it promises us these things. Much less tells us to be more concerned about them than we ever are about God. Show me in the Bible where we are promised freedom and rights and fairness. Because I'll show you a litany of saints throughout the ages that have exercised their God-given right to be persecuted unfairly. I'll show you a multitude of saints standing under the throne of God who were unjustly executed for their faith. And I'll show you a Savior. A Savior the only one who truly had a right to anything, who the Bible says set an example for us by laying aside his rights. I'll show you a Savior who was wrongly accused and yet opened not his mouth. I'll show you a Savior who asked his father if there was another way and said, your will be done when there was not. I'll show you a Savior who kept silent when his divine rights were being unfairly violated by his own creation. Because the reason I can show you that Savior is because I'll show you a Savior who had a far greater hope and security than this world. Brothers and sisters, listen to me when I say we must not look back at this nation as though we're losing something important when our Savior Jesus Christ is standing right next to us. See, many American Christians are, are okay. They're, they're okay living in the suburbs of Sodom. They want to enjoy all of the amenities but still be able to deny the zip code. However, as America grows further and further away from God, you have to choose. The truth of the matter is this. You can no longer keep your eyes on America and God at the same time. So which one are you going to look at? America or God? Because right now, it's as if we have our, our Savior over here and our nation with all its 
disintegrating blessings and freedoms and securities over here. And our Savior is saying, come on, this way. We're stuck. We're torn. Please don't misunderstand me. We're, we're, I understand we're grieving for what we're losing. And we look back to Him and we cry out, but it's not fair what they're doing. He says, I know. Come with me. Let me show you what the real Christian life is like. And we say, but Lord, they're going to get away with it. No, they won't. For a while, but not forever. Then the truth boils up. And we say to our Savior, but Lord, I miss it. I miss the blessings and the peace, the security and the freedom that I had. And He says, I know. But I have something better for you. I have a hope and a security and a peace that transcends politicians and laws and bills of rights. Brothers and sisters, we must not look back at this nation as though we're losing something we don't already have more of in Christ. We can't look back at a nation and be sad we're losing freedoms when we have freedom in Christ. Let me be blunt one more time and ask you this. For what country are you more homesick? Are you more homesick for America or Zion? Are you more preoccupied with the return of the amber waves of grain? Or the coming streets paved with gold? Are you more concerned about the next person in the White House? Or the one coming on a white horse? Brothers and sisters, don't look back. Don't look back at your status. Don't look back at your shame. And don't look back at your nation when your Savior beckons us to follow Him. Now, I've spent a lot of time this morning telling you what not to look back on, but I don't want to leave you there. I want to make sure you know what it, what it is we're looking towards. Because it's the same thing that Lot and his wife had to look to. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul was describing everything he had accumulated in this world. He described his status as a Pharisee, his, his rights as a Roman. He's describing his righteousness according to the law. But then he said something interesting, and I can't help but wonder if he was thinking about Lot's wife when he wrote it. After describing everything he had accumulated in this world, he said in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. But then, after saying that, after saying He gave everything up as loss, in such a gracious way, He continued in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Isn't that awesome? Do you find yourself there a lot? Wanting this, but knowing at the same time I'm not there yet? I want to press on. I don't want to look back. I want to move forward. I want to keep my eyes on Christ. I'm just not there yet. Well, look what Paul says in verses 12 through 14. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, forget what lies behind. Forget the status and the identity that this world has to offer. For, forget about the shame and forget even about the nation that lies behind you. And press on. Press on toward the prize. The, the prize whose name is Jesus Christ. The prize who, like Paul, listen to this, the prize who, like Paul, you will never regret giving up this world for. You will never regret giving up your rights to display your hope and trust in your Savior. You will never regret giving up your wealth for the treasure that you have in Him. You will never regret giving up your status to display the value that you have in Christ. You will never regret forgetting what is behind you and straining forward to what lies ahead. Because what lies ahead is Christ. So don't look back. Keep your eyes fixed on that day that you will see Him face to face. Keep your eyes fixed forward on the day when He will lead you out of this wilderness of weariness and sin. Keep your eyes fixed forward on the day when He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Keep your eyes forward on that day when He will take you to this place and show you around that He's made special just for you. Keep your eyes forward on that day when He will look you in the eyes and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray.